This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Back in the early 90s, George Otis Jr. of the Sentinel Group Research Agency coined a term called spiritual mapping. He referred to this term as superimposing our understanding of forces and events in the spiritual domain onto places and circumstances in the material world. Otis told Christianity Today at the time that spiritual mapping is nothing more ethereal than creating a spiritual profile of a community based on careful research. And the concept of spiritual mapping began to gain momentum from there. Influential church growth expert C. Peter Wagner went on to teach a spiritual mapping class at Fuller Theological Seminary. He also asserted the concept of strategic level warfare, which he defined as discerning and praying against territorial spirits assigned to a community. Wagner even wrote a book called Territorial Spirits, Practical Strategies for How to Crush the Enemy Through Spiritual Warfare. Now, the Bible certainly teaches the reality of spiritual warfare. We think of Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But has the modern day church gone beyond scripture in addressing the nature of spiritual warfare and how we are to wage it? This is our topic today. Jim Osman is joining me, pastor at Kootenai Community Church in Idaho, and his book is called Truth or Territory, A Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare. Jim, it's great to welcome you back. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on the program. I appreciate it. Well, it's our honor to have you back. When we are using this term spiritual warfare, obviously different people see it in different ways. How would you define it biblically, spiritual warfare? I define spiritual warfare as a battle for truth, and I use as my text 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, where uh, Paul says, "We walk, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And there, Paul... Paul is basically saying to the Corinthians that though there were people in the church there who were questioning his authority and and his motives and uh, and slandering his integrity, he was not battling against them people per se. He, he, though he walked in the flesh, he was not warring against people in the flesh nor using fleshly weapons. But really, it's a battle for truth. He says we're we're taking down uh, fortresses, the, the weapons of a warfare, not of the flesh. They're spiritual for the destruction of fortresses. And then he defines those fortresses as speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. So true spiritual warfare is not that we are battling demonic forces. We are doing so with the truth, not with what I call carnal weapons like casting down Satan, pleading the blood of Jesus, uh, naming and rebuking territorial spirits, rebuking the devil, 
canceling generational curses and hexes and praying hedges of thorns. Those things are not scriptural. They're not biblical. Really, we are called to engage the, the minds of men. We're after the minds of men, and we are trying to destroy the mental fortresses like atheism, agnosticism, postmodernism, rationalism, these these mental ideas that people have that keep them uh, that, that are raised up against the knowledge of God that keep them captive in their sin. We are really engaged in a battle for the truth, not a, a battle for territory. And uh, that's where the title of my book, Truth the Territory, comes from. So I would define spiritual warfare as a battle for the truth, not a battle for people necessarily, but um, not a battle for territory. We're not supposed to be binding Satan from geographical locations. We're not identifying uh, territorial spirits, as you, as you talked about in your introduction with George Otis and C. Peter Wagner, uh, for the purpose of seizing uh, geographic locations or, uh, or people groups for the Lord. We are involved in a battle for the truth. Well, that's well said. And it's interesting because when you go to that passage that you mentioned in Second Corinthians chapter 10, there is that reference in, in the translation I have of the weapons of our warfare not being of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, I've heard that kind of language in the kind of rhetoric that goes around about spiritual warfare today in a lot of different camps saying, we need to destroy the strongholds of Satan and we take back our power over in the name of Jesus. You know, that kind of talk that you hear, I'm going to destroy... Mm-hmm. Stronghold. So the idea, it seems to some Christians, is that I, as a Christian, have to destroy Satan in some way. Well, where does the Bible even teach that? Yeah, it doesn't. In, in fact, in the very next verse, Paul goes on to define what he means by strongholds. He said, we are destroying speculations yeah. and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are after the minds of men through the proclamation of the truth. So we are to be preaching the truth, defending the truth, articulating the truth, sharing the truth. The gospel is the truth, and it is through the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the Word of God, that we are destroying all of the anti-Christian lies that the devil raises up against a true knowledge of God. Um, We want people to come to a knowledge of the one true God, and in order to do that, we are to assault their mental speculations, their their mental arguments, the the reasonings, the the, uh, ideologies, the falsehoods that men use in, in... in protecting themselves against coming to the knowledge of God. So, you know, atheism, we're to destroy the false ideology of atheism, the false ideology of secular humanism and evolution. Uh, We're to attack those lies, because those are the lies that that people put up as an excuse against God. You you hear this when you share the truth with people. They'll say things like, well, evolution proves that there is no God, or I'm an atheist because I have all these arguments against the existence of God. Our, Our message of the truth assaults those speculations that are raised up against the true knowledge of God. And that's what we're really bringing down. We're, we're not, we're not assaulting these, these speculate or these fortresses of Satan that are some spiritual fortress that he has constructed in the spiritual realm that we assault by saying, I rebuke you, Satan. I plead the blood of Jesus over this. Yeah. I pray a hedge of thorns. I bind the devil. That's how most people think spiritual warfare is waged. And none of those practices are biblical. And the passages that are often used to support them are taken out of context and pressed into uh, this this uh, modern method of spiritual warfare that most people have in their in their minds. Well, it also is problematic because when you talk about binding Satan or taking down strongholds and this kind of talk, it is Christ who defeated Satan. It is Christ who will eventually defeat Satan for good. He's already defeated. He's a defeated foe who is still allowed on the earth to wreak havoc, but his days are numbered. It's an odd thing, isn't it, to make that leap from crushing Satan was Christ's job, but now I'm going to take it on. How did we get here? 
Yeah, because people in the spiritual warfare movement, much like people in the New Apostolic Reformation Word of Faith movement, they assume that they have the same kind of authority, the same level of authority and, uh, and, and degree of authority that Christ himself has. And so that is why they think that their job is to go out and, and rebuke the devil and bind the devil and take back all the things that he has captured, uh, because they view themselves as, as basically working out this, this authority in this realm by pushing back the forces of darkness through the words that they say, the prayers that they pray, the mantras that they repute, and, and their activities in this realm. And so they have a they have a warped and wrong view of their authority in Christ, and uh, and that uh, that fleshes itself out in this area of spiritual warfare when, when they start practicing these these things that are completely and patently unbiblical. Right. So when you're talking about truth or territory, you do hear a lot of this territory discussion coming from this crowd. Why is it about territory for them? Well, they're they're thinking that the spiritual strongholds are are things in this world that Satan has seized and that we're supposed to claim them back. Um, this was a, a view of spiritual warfare that I held in my early Christian life when I was exposed to a tape, and I don't even remember who was on the cassette tape, but it was a message where this man went through this method of spiritual warfare. If you want to claim your relatives for Christ, you need to first bind the devil so he can have no influence over them. Then you need to plead the blood of Jesus over them. Then you need to, to claim them for the Lord, and then you need to cancel all the generational sins and curses so that they would be free from that. And then you need to uh, plead the blood of Jesus some more, and then pray a hedge of thorns so Satan can't affect them. And it was just this hmm. massive construct of things that you would do to claim uh, just one individual for the Lord. And then this this methodology is applied to a conference center or a church building or a home. Um, this is employed by, by men who promote this theology of spiritual warfare. It's employed even for taking over territory like a house. Like if you're going to buy a house, you don't want the devil or any remnants of a spiritual uh, presence there. So you need to come in and you need to plead the blood of Jesus and fill the hedge of thorns around it and claim that house for the Lord and yeah. find Satan out of it and cast him out and exercise him. Yeah, we got it. We got to do better on that and, and really go back to the word of God, which is sufficient for teaching us these things. Jim Osman with us. Truth or Territory is his book. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today. The U.N. has called what's happening in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. COVID-19, political upheaval, a crumbling economy, and two million refugees, children and their families, living in poverty and despair. But in the middle of it all, God is at work. More Muslim-cultured people than ever before are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And through your generous support, Heart for Lebanon is being used to bring these hurting people from despair to hope. A single gift of 100 helps bring a child and their family survival essentials and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. $348 cares for this family for an entire year. We have a goal to take over 50 families off a waiting list that desperately need our help. So we're hoping you'll be as generous as you can when you call 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? 
Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, if you know anything of Ephesians 6, you understand that there is a spiritual battle going on. It's not against flesh and blood. We understand it is a spiritual endeavor and it is a very serious thing when you read through all the things we are required to do, standing on the word of God, taking on the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, etc. But unfortunately, in today's day and age, we have some people who have taken the subject of spiritual warfare and really strayed biblically from what it is, which is primarily and centrally a battle for truth. As my guest says, Pastor Jim Osman, author of Truth or Territory. So Jim, let's pick up where we left off. You've got this I don't want to call them all the same group, but you have people today who say that it's about claiming territory, binding the devil, pleading the blood of Jesus. And of course, we love the blood of Jesus, but then claiming your family for Christ and then canceled generational curses. You know, it was something to see this one uh, section of a testimony that I read online. This is from somebody on a blog, but I just thought it was an interesting thing about generational curses. And it was about a little boy who seemed to be demonized. And this person said, well, the demonization obviously wasn't the result of the boy's own sin or his choice to worship false gods. The spirits were passed on to him from some other source, which most likely is his family. Well, but how do we how do we defend that idea biblically? If a little boy appears to be demonized, that was grandpa's fault? Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, that is a, a patently unbiblical concept. So scripture in, um, in Ezekiel 18, I think it is, where the Lord says that the, the son will not be punished for the sins of his father or the father for the sins of the son, yeah. but everybody will be punished for their own sins. So if you have a, a father, I think it's Ezekiel, he spells out this, this long scenario in which you have a, a father who acts righteously and does righteously, follows the law of God, he's blessed. If his son turns around and is disobedient to the law and rebels against the Lord and sins against the Lord, will that son receive the blessing because the father was righteous? No, Ezekiel says that not at all. But if that son who was wicked has another son who is then righteous, will that righteous son be punished for the sins of his father? And Ezekiel says, no, that's 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 not exact that's not at all how it works the lord punishes people for their own sins so to suggest that some child is being punished or cursed or under a a demon because of the sins of its ancestors is patently unbiblical. Right. And what's really going on here is a theological problem because you say there's no sphere of the Christian life where the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture gets jettisoned more quickly than it does in the theology behind modern spiritual warfare practices. How is that the case? Take this apart theologically a little bit, Jim, if you would, and explain to people what is going on with the lack of attention to the sufficiency of Scripture when it comes to a lot of these ideas? In many of the spiritual warfare circles um, that I critique in the book, in many of them, they are relying upon extra-biblical revelation for the information that they use in battling the spiritual realm. 
So uh, oftentimes it, it comes either by way of extra biblical revelation or just in terms of their experience. So it is not uncommon to see men like Bob Larson and other uh, alleged exorcists have interviews with demons where they ask the name of demons that are inside of this person, ask where they come from, ask who their authority is, who, what other demon lord general they're under, uh, what their activities have been, how they got into this person. They are receiving information from demonic sources. And then they turn around and leverage that information into their spiritual warfare practices. Um, and if you ask them, what makes you think that, that this information is true? It comes from a demon. And then they will appeal to their experience and say, well, when I, when I prayed specifically against this demon, then we found release or we found um, deliverance from this. And they're relying upon the information sometimes going, gained in with demonic encounters or in mm-hmm. demonic encounters, exorcism, sometimes in personal revelation that they get, like, uh, for instance, the, the practice that you talked about, about spiritual mapping, where they try and find out the name of the demons who are over the United States and then regions within the United States so that they can pray against specifically that demon force and, and bring down that spiritual stronghold so that then the gospel can go forward. That's the practice of spiritual mapping or stri- what's called sometimes strategic level spiritual warfare. That, that information has, is not gleaned in Scripture. There's nowhere in Scripture where we find out what the names of these demon generals are over these areas of the United States. So they're relying in these charismatic circles upon extra-biblical revelation to give them this information. Some of it gleaned from demonic sources, and then they're praying accordingly or, or leveraging their spiritual warfare efforts accordingly, supposedly to bring down these spiritual uh, fortresses, these spiritual speculation strongholds that we've talked about. And and that is uh, that they're not relying upon scripture for that information. There's nothing in scripture that says what the names of these demon demons are um, that they're specifically praying against. Yeah, that's right. And and you don't really want to get your information from a demon. Why would that be a reliable source in the first place? Yeah, yeah. They're they're assuming that this is true, and and they're trusting a demon. And and uh, you just have to ask why why would you trust that? Why would you not just go to scripture when when you go to scripture and you look at what spiritual warfare is? It is simply the proclamation of truth. We are involved in a spiritual battle, but that battle is waged when we proclaim the gospel. We don't need anything outside of Scripture. We don't need any revelation outside of Scripture to to uh, to battle to make the, to uh, prosecute the spiritual battle. So, for instance, uh, George Otis and C. Peter Wagner, he said that this is one of the most this strategic level spiritual warfare is one of the most significant and important things that the Spirit is revealing to the churches today. Well, that is. A, a reliance upon extra biblical revelation. You just have to ask yourself, where, why was the Spirit holding this back? This mm. such a significant tool for two thousand years, and He's just now giving it to us. Was it not necessary before now? And if it was necessary prior to now, then why did the Spirit withhold it from His church? How many more thousands of people, millions of people, could have been saved if only we had this tool that they allege is just now being revealed to the church? Great point. So you can see how the the, the emphasis behind that is that the scripture is not sufficient for this battle. We need revelation, information not contained in scripture, in order to effectively prosecute the spiritual battle. Wow. Well, that's that's a very significant thing for people to understand. Now, you talk about two approaches that are commonly used to build a theology of spiritual warfare. One that you discuss is the empirical method. The other is basing our understanding on revelation. Can you explain the difference between those two approaches and why they matter? Yeah, if we just came to Scripture and Scripture alone, and this is the, the revelation that I'm talking about, not private and personal revelation, but the revelation that God has given to us in the Old and New Testament. If we just came to Scripture and Scripture alone and said, what does this spiritual battle look like? 
we would see that in the Gospels, we have examples of Jesus directly confronting the forces of darkness. Then we would see him giving certain authority to his disciples, and there are some, not as many, but some direct confrontations in the book of Acts between the apostles of the Lord and the forces of darkness. And then when we get further into the New Testament in the epistles, which are the instructions to Christians in the churches of how to wage spiritual warfare, we would see there that we are not encouraged nor commanded, nor do we have any examples, and we're not given any instruction at all on binding Satan, on casting down Satan, on pleading the blood of Jesus, on strategic-level spiritual warfare, naming demonic hosts or anything. We find when we look at the epistles of the New Testament that our main enemy is not the devil, it is the flesh. And so we have chapter after chapter in the epistles of the New Testament about how to mortify the flesh, reckon the deeds of our body as being dead, and put on the new man in Christ, how to walk in holiness. That is the emphasis in the New Testament. The the direct confrontation between Jesus and the demonic was intended to demonstrate that he was the Messiah, since only the Messiah could come into the world and do what Jesus did over the demons, to exercise that kind of power over death, disease, nature, and the demonic realm. That was an evidence of his messianic claims. So if we were to just base our understanding of spiritual warfare on Scripture and Scripture alone, we would understand Satan is a defeated foe. Our job is to stand, not to advance. Mm. We're not intended to to go out and conquer Satan. He has been conquered. He has defeated foe. Our main enemy is the flesh. And, and we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the devil does deceive us. We are warned against him. So it's not that he is a non-entity, but it is that, that our primary enemy is the flesh. It's within us. It's yep. our own sinful nature that we have to battle against. Excellent. That's that's so well said. The three enemies, not just one, the world, the flesh and the devil. So when we're talking about the nature of Satan, who he is, we know the basics as Christians. He's a fallen angel. He took a third with him and they were demons and we know they exist and we know they're real. What do you think we really need to understand theologically about Satan in the midst of all the error we're seeing concerning binding and rebuking him? We need to understand that though he is a defeated enemy, that Christ has defeated him, and the complete expression or the complete, uh, I guess, vindication of that uh, of that defeat is going to be yet future, because he, he, currently the devil is a, a lion roaring about, roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. Yep. So we are warned in Scripture that he is there to deceive us. He lies to us. He lies about us. He is accusing us constantly before the throne of God. He is our enemy, but he does not have the power over us. We don't fear death. We have no reason to fear the devil. He is a defeated foe, and Christ himself is going to vanquish him entirely at the end, and it's not going to be us that have a part in that. Christ is going to bind him, put him into the the pit for a thousand years, and eventually cast him into outer darkness and into the place called hell that is prepared for the devil and his angels. In the meantime, we are to stand, understanding that the devil who is our enemy is a deceiver and he is a liar, and that is why we attack the lies that he tells with the truth. Yes. So many Christians are, are very adept at binding Satan, rebuking him, pleading the blood of Jesus, canceling generational curses, praying hedges of the thorns, but they are losing the war against their flesh because mm-hmm. they have no idea how to fight that enemy. And yeah. then they're losing the war against the devil because they believe all kinds of lies that he tells. And it, it is not difficult to look at the church, modern church in America today, and realize we are awash in lies, and most people who name the name of Christ believe almost any lie spewed up from the pit of hell from the bowels of Satan himself. Mm. Meanwhile, they think they're just doing great work 
in defending the truth and, and in fighting the devil because they're binding him and casting him down and rebuking him on, on right hand and on the left hand. And they're losing the true war, which is a battle for the truth, because their minds have not been trained to discern truth or to know truth. Most of them do not, most Christians do not sit under good preaching. They're, they're not discerning, and they're not even able to understand or articulate the gospel when given the chance. And we are, we're losing the truth war, and we're fighting a war that we're not called to fight, we're not equipped to fight, and, and we're not expected or even instructed to fight at all. Wow. Jim, hang on a moment. We're going to go to a break. We'll be back with Jim Osmond, Truth or Territory, on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. When we talk about spiritual warfare, we are talking about a battle for truth. Have you heard it described that way before? Because that's what the Bible actually teaches. Jim Osmond is with us. Truth or Territory, a Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare is our topic this hour in the name of his book as well. So, Jim, you made a really good point that while some people will focus a lot on binding and rebuking the devil and spiritual mapping and all these kinds of convoluted spiritual warfare techniques, too many Christians today or professing Christians can't even define the gospel of Jesus Christ, not understanding that it isn't Satan we're called to defeat. We are to stand in the evil day, as Ephesians 6 says, but we have three enemies. We have the enemy of the devil, we have the enemy of the flesh, and we have the enemy of the world. Speak to that issue a little bit, especially you'd mentioned about our sin nature and how that is always with us. Even as born-again Christians, we understand we will continue to sin until we're finally with Christ. How do we deal with the world? What do you do about the world in regard to spiritual warfare? How does that tie in? The world is the, the system of thinking that leaves God out. And so you have that description in 1 John chapter 2, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride, uh, the pride of life. Yeah. Those things that we lust after, that, that the world system, that way of thinking that causes us to long for everything and desire everything that leaves God out and to, to hate uh, everything that is righteous, holy, good, and true. There is a system of thinking that the world has adopted, and Satan uses that to draw us in, to lure us in. I would make the argument that the church today is becoming more and more worldly all the time. We think like the world. We act like the world. We run our churches like the world. We look almost indistinguishable from the world. Um, and, and so there is this whole world system out there, the way of thinking that leaves God out, that Satan uses himself. It's, it's his system, entirely his system. It's his creation, and he uses it to deceive us and to blind us and to lure us into uh, in, inactivity and unfruitfulness in our own Christian lives. And it, that world is appealing to our flesh, which is inside of us. So we have two external enemies, the devil and the, the world system. They're external to us. And both of the, the devil uses the world system to appeal to our flesh. And so they work in concert against us uh, all the time. And Satan is the defeated enemy, but the world system continually pumps out his lies 
And as Christians, if we are not discerning and grounded in the truth and understand the Word of God and understand a biblical, have a biblical worldview, then we begin to adopt the way of thinking that is very worldly. And many Christians, I mean, you look at some of the charismatic circles in which uh, these practices of spiritual warfare that I critique and that I've been talking about here um, find a home, those circles are often very worldly. You look at the churches and they are awash in affluence, and they appeal to the lust of the flesh, and, and the prosperity gospel is awash in this. You look at TBN, that is a worldly system that is just like the world, but it is worldly, worldliness and greed and covetousness mm. that is baptized in Christian lingo. And so people will stand up there in, in million-dollar suits, flying their million-dollar planes, and talk about how they're binding the devil and casting him out and rebuking him mm. uh, on this side and that side, and yet they are as worldly as any worldling out there that does not profess to know Christ at all. You know, and it's interesting, you you were talking about Bob Larson earlier, and people might remember Bob Larson used to do a talk show, and I used to listen to it back in the day, and he was, he had some really good stuff to say. He he was very good on the cult and good on a lot of different issues, and the next thing you know, he's turning up with a, like a priest collar and doing exorcisms for a living, and and you wonder how much of this, how much of this, not him in particular, but some of these others that you've mentioned from TBN and Prosperity Gospel Types, how much of this is really, in your opinion, kind of a love of personal power, a love of excitement. Look at me. I can bind the devil and I can teach you how to bind the devil. That is the opposite spirit of what we're to be as Christians, which is to be humble and, you know, less of me, more of Christ. It seems to be antithetical to what the Bible teaches about our attitude and our posture as Christians. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a sensational element to that. Obviously, you get a guy on television or YouTube who's who's out there, you know, spitting on demonically and, uh, the demonic people and, and holding up a cross and throwing holy water on them yeah. and yelling and screaming back at somebody who's responding to them in a guttural voice. And that sells. I mean, that's, that's sensationalism. And people think that, wow, that's real spiritual warfare. I can give my money to that. There's a, a sensational element to that that is not present when somebody like me just stands up and says, hey, you, you need to read your Bible and be discerning and, and know the truth and be grounded in the truth and put to death the deeds of the flesh and and uh, be well-grounded in a Christian worldview and go out and share the gospel, that's not sensational, and that's yeah. not, that doesn't appeal to the, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. It, it doesn't make one look like a, a grand teacher or a real spiritual warrior, whereas doing the other things that, that are sensational like that certainly appeal to that worldly mindset that, that most Christians have bought into. Yeah, that's right. Can you speak to this issue, Jim, because I'm sure there are a lot of listeners who have questions about things like exorcisms and things like modern day demon possession. Are people possessed by demons today? Is it possible for Christians to be demon possessed or to be demonized? Sometimes people will draw that distinction. What do you make of modern day demons and the way they work in the world? Do you believe that people can be demon-possessed in our own day? And if so, what is a Christian to do about that? Yeah, I do certainly believe that Christian, that people can be demon-possessed today. I do not believe that Christians can be demon-possessed. Right. And there is a distinction here between demon possession and demon influence that, that I'll make here in just a second. But uh, non-Christians are certainly subject to demon possession, and I think that uh, demons do possess people today. I have no reason to believe that they don't. Um, our friend Justin Peters would say that he thinks that there are certain people within the word faith movement who are demon-possessed, yeah. and uh, he's been in the presence of some of them, and he would say, man, if that guy's not demon-possessed, I don't know what demon-possession looks like. Yeah. I think that unbelievers certainly can be demon-possessed. Now, a Christian cannot be demon-possessed because 
greater is he who dwells in us than he who is in the world, that is the devil. So when you are a Christian, you are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You are redeemed. You're given a new nature. The Spirit of God dwells in you. He seals you. And there is no way that a Christian can possess, or sorry, that a Christian can be demon-possessed or be possessed by a demon. Now, there are people who believe that a Christian can be possessed by a demon, and they would say that the answer to that is an exorcism, so that Christian need to be exercised of that demon before they can progress in holiness and sanctification and, and really have a victorious Christian life. They blame sin in the life of a believer on demon possession, and I say no sin in the life of a believer is, again, we come back to the flesh. It's the result of walking in the flesh and not walking in the Spirit. So the answer for a Christian who struggles with sin is not an exorcism. The answer is to mortify your flesh and to understand what the process of sanctification should look like, that that when we are progressing in holiness and walking with the Lord, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. Right. And we say no to them, and we yield our in, our members as instruments of righteousness so that we can walk in holiness. That is the answer for the Christian. Now, what do we do with a Christian or people who say that uh, they exercised a demon out of a Christian? And, and there are certainly instances where people who have who are allegedly saved manifest these symptoms or these these expressions that seem to comport with demon possession. And I would say that in that case, you have a, a one of a couple things that are going on. Either that person thinks they're a Christian and they're not. They've been fed a false gospel and they're a false convert. And I would not rule that out in any instance. That they've not understood the gospel, they've not really repented, they're not truly born again. They think they are, and so they are could be then genuinely demon-possessed, or they are truly a Christian who has believed a lie that a demon possesses them, and they have given over them themselves, their mind and their body, to this lie to such a degree that a demon is oppressing them or even manipulating them from the outside. Mm. And those are, they've deceived themselves or they have been deceived that they can be possessed when in fact they cannot be. Yes. And that is how I would explain an alleged Christian who manifests demon, possess, demon possession symptoms. Do you believe it is a biblical practice for a Christian to exercise or whatever name you want to give to it, somebody who he believes is demon possessed? Is that a legitimate biblical thing to do? No, I don't. And my argument for that would be this, that in the New Testament, it is Jesus and the apostles who exercise demons in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And I would challenge your listeners, if you want to, if you want to really study up on this, just read the Gospels and the book of Acts and look for every example of an exorcism in the Gospel and the book of Acts, and you will find that exorcisms are classified as signs and wonders akin to and in the same passages with healings and resurrections from the dead. Mm. So it is a sign. It, having the ability to perform an exorcism was a sign. It was a demonstration in the case of Jesus that he was the Messiah and in the case of the apostles that they were the spokesmen for the Messiah. Right. We're going to so, hold on right there, Jim. I'm so sorry. we got to run to another break. Truth or Territory, the book from Pastor Jim Osmond. We'll come back right after this. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Aria lives in the Middle East in a radical Muslim family. She accepted the invitation of a Christian friend to attend a weekly Bible study and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. She took her Bible study booklet home, hiding it in her room before her mother found it and gave it to her father. He severely beat young Aria and called the authorities to report her as an infidel. They took her to a remote cell where they assaulted her and the Christian friend before letting them go. These two women didn't grow bitter. They grew bold 
bold. And together, they've seen hundreds come to Christ in the Middle East, where Christians are urged to support new believers. You suddenly realize how critical it is for Christians not just to assume God will look after their brothers and sisters who have converted from Islam, but that they will be prepared to walk with them. Help send God's word to believers like Aria. One Bible is only $5, and a limited time match will double your gift. Call 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. When this young mom came into a preborn center, she had decided that abortion was the best choice as she was coming out of an abusive relationship. But after meeting her baby on ultrasound and feeling the love and support she needed from the preborn staff, she knew life was the best choice. The ultrasound, I was in shock. I knew I was pregnant, but seeing it on the screen was a completely different ball game. Honestly, without you, I don't think I would have my little boy. He's so healthy and he's so sweet and I am so grateful every day. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 855-402-BABY. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, this hour is going so fast. Jim Osmond is with us, pastor at Kootenai Community Church in Idaho. He is the author of Truth or Territory, A Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare. We were talking about exorcisms and demon possession, Jim, before we went to that last break. And you were making the point that it is not appropriate to do exorcisms now because the sign of exorcism there, when you read the Gospels and you read Acts, was something that Christ did and the apostles did. It's not something we do. So the the natural question, I would think, from some listeners would be, well, what do you do? If you're a Christian, you come across somebody who appears to be demon-possessed, what's the, pro- the appropriate response to that? They need the gospel. And there's nothing in Scripture that suggests that you need to exercise a demon before preaching the gospel to them. A demon-possessed person is no more lost than somebody who is absolutely moral but still has rejected the gospel. They're just as lost, they are just as blinded, they're just as dead in their trespasses and sins as somebody who has never heard the gospel. So the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and at the moment that a person believes and they repent of their sin and trust Christ for salvation, his finished work on the cross, they are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. They are indwelt by the Spirit of God. They become a child of God. They're protected, and they are sealed by him uh, everlastingly. So there is no need for an exorcism to deliver somebody from a demon when all that is needed is the proclamation of the gospel. And when we say that we need something else— to make the gospel effective, we are saying that the gospel itself is not sufficient to that task. And I would argue that the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation, and therefore what a demon-possessed person needs is a clear presentation of the gospel. Yeah. How about this issue of naming demons, Jim? You hear sometimes people talking about the demon of alcoholism, the demon of sexual abuse, the demon of this, the demon of that. The Bible doesn't talk about demons being named with certain sins, does it? No, those things are called deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. So we talk about the demon of lust, the demon of, uh, you know, the demon of infidelity, the demon of immorality, the demon of alcohol, the demon of tobacco, the demon of rage, the demon of anger. These things are the lust of the flesh. And again, this is where Christians get mixed up and start blaming their sin on the wrong thing. 
they need to look at their own flesh and say, these sins need to be mortified. I need to put off the old man and put on the new man created in Christ Jesus. And instead of thinking that they need some extra work done in the spiritual realm on their behalf to, to bring them victory, like an exorcism or binding Satan or whatever it is, they need to just look at the fact that this, these are the sins of the flesh and that we just need to mortify the flesh. We need to kill it. We need to stop sinning. We need to trust Christ. We need to walk in holiness and make this decision. Put off the old man and put on the new man. That is the answer for those sins, not an exorcism of a demon that's named after these sins. And when, when Christians get the process of sanctification wrong, then again, they just, they're losing the battle to the flesh when they think that they're waging real spiritual warfare. So they, they say, man, I just struggle with my lust. I need to be extra, have this demon of lust exercised out of me, or I need to bind him, or I need to rebuke him. No, that's not the answer. You need to you need to crucify the flesh. You need to to die. You need to die to it. You need to yep. kill it. You need yep. to mortify it. You need to choose righteousness instead, and give your members as instruments of righteousness, so that you become a slave of righteousness. That's the process of sanctification. It's, it's not battling against these demons that that create these sins. You, those sins are not created by demons. They're created by your flesh. And this is how Christians are losing the battle on one front while they think they're waging it on another. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. That's so true. It also looks a little bit to the outsider like that may be a way to evade responsibility for your flesh, your sinful flesh. They say, hey, you know, it's the demon of alcoholism. What are you going to do? I mean, I can't get yeah. rid of him. The devil made me do it. The devil, the devil made, made me made do it. it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the, and the devil is involved. How would you describe the, the degree to which Satan is involved in attacking individual Christians? This sometimes comes up as well. Yeah, I think that's going to vary with each uh, individual Christian. I think that the the way that the devil deceives us is, of course, getting us to believe lies about ourselves, about our Lord, about His Word, about the truth. Um, and, and he is actively involved in deceiving Christians into thinking things that are not true. I mean, I think one of the ways that Satan is, is, is um, working today is deceiving us into thinking that our sin and uh, the works of our flesh are actually uh, uh, have him to blame for those, that we can actually blame him for those things. That's a deception. And so when we, we, we are losing the battle to the devil when we buy into his lies. So he obviously is a deceiver. We have to be on guard against him. We have to understand his methods. We have to understand his, his lies. We have to know what they are. I think we have to be attuned to the spirit of the age and know what it is that, it, that he is currently trying to deceive people about and be on guard against that and make sure that we are not living our lives according to the lies of the evil one. And um, that's really where the battle is, is to be waged. Well, and you made such a good point going back to Ephesians chapter six, where it talks about standing. You know, you go to verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore having girded your loins with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, etc. Then you come to verse 17 and it talks about taking up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And many commentators have made the observation that that's the one piece of armor that is offensive. That's why the Bible is so important. Without the standard and the authority of the Word of God guiding us in, in doing any kind of spiritual warfare, we're sunk because we'll, we'll go to our imaginations or we'll make things up or we'll talk about extra biblical revelation. Can you speak to that issue of the armor of God and the necessity of standing, not necessarily advancing and conquering the devil in your own flesh? Yeah, the Word of God is essential to that because that is what informs our mind in the truth, so that we know what is true and we know what is not. And an uneducated Christian is an undiscerning Christian, and an undiscerning Christian cannot tell the lie from the truth. 
So they're not going to be able to stand so that when the devil comes with his lies to, to deceive us, they're going to fall right into that trap. Right. And they've got to have the Word of God and be well-versed in it and under good biblical preaching and teaching so that they can know the truth and know sound doctrine and therefore be able to pick out the lies of the devil and, and not fall prey to them. Yeah, very important. What about also, I know we don't have a lot of time left here, Jim, but I got to get in all the questions uh, as much as I can before you were out of time. But, you know, there are also a lot of Christians who unfortunately will flirt with the occult a little bit here and there. You know, I remember as a kid, we would do these things at slumber parties sometimes, light as a feather, stiff as a board, or play with a Ouija board or something like that. Very dangerous to do that. Very wrong to do that. How much of that do you think is a big threat to the Church of Jesus Christ? Just unknowing Christians, undiscerning Christians flirting with the occult. Yeah, we're warned about that constantly in Scripture. In the Old Testament, it was a death penalty for people involved in doing that. The the spiritual realm is very real, and Christians need to take it seriously. And, uh, you know, we need to be on guard against any of those practices or any kind of communication with the occult realm or the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is real, and our ability to communicate with it and it with us is very real. And the more Christians open themselves up to that, or alleged Christians, I should say, open themselves Mm -hmm. up to that, the more they open themselves up to lies and deception and uh, demonic influence. And and they need to be, I I wouldn't even say they need to be careful about it. They need to just not do it, period. It's not like you can do it in a careful way. No. It's just that you just, you're not involved in it. No type, type of necromancy, no type of communication with the spiritual realm. Ouija boards, tarot cards. Uh, communication with the dead, all of that stuff is absolutely demonic and dangerous. Oh, it is. And I came across this quote by C. Peter Wagner, and this kind of goes into your part of the book where you talk about empirical evidence, you know, this methodology where you gather data from observations and experiences in order to talk about spiritual warfare. He wrote this, certain people such as shamans, witch doctors, practitioners of Eastern religions, New Age gurus, or professors of the occult on university faculties are examples of the kind of people who may have much more extensive knowledge of the spirit world than most Christians have. Well, I guess you could take that either way, but certainly we're not to draw from the shaman next door to figure out how to deal with the supernatural world involving the devil. The Bible is enough. Yeah, and there there again, to see Peter Wagner showing that he does not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, he would even suggest that any knowledge of any uh, any, any knowledge gained from almost any source is reliable information about the spiritual realm. And that we can learn from all of these sources. And, and I say, no, we can't learn from those sources. Those sources are sources of deception. Why would you trust them to give you reliable information about what is true and not true? That's right. Well, wrapping things up, Jim, what would you say would be your best advice to the church and to individual Christians listening about waging spiritual warfare the way that God wants us to? We need to be well-grounded in the truth. Uh, again, it just comes back to having our minds educated with what is true and being clear and discerning on those issues then we need to be equipped in order to defend the truth. We should be, every one of us, in some measure, a mini-apologist and a mini-preacher of the truth. We need to be well-versed in what the gospel is so that we can share it. We need to be well-versed in what sound doctrine and sound theology is, sound hermeneutics, so that we can interpret Scripture well and rightly and accurately and be able to give to every man a reason for the hope that is within us. And that can only come when we know the truth. Amen. So well said. A great book, by the way, Jim. I just love the book. Truth or Territory, A Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare by Pastor Jim Osmond from Kootenai Community Church. Really good to have you here, Jim. I appreciate all your biblical insight, and I know the listeners do too. Thank you again for being with us. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. God bless you. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today. It's always a blessing to have you here. Hope you'll join us next time. Take care. This hour of Janet Mefford today is brought to you in part by Heart for Lebanon. Call 888-247-5499 to give desperate people help and the hope of the gospel. 888-247-5499.